Hello to all and all are welcome. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. We have a really big guest today. I'm so excited to have her um, now. Uh, the history uh, between me and this guest deals with, you know, like academics. You know, I met her studying early in college while I was, you know, in my first anthropology class. And then from there, I think I developed a strong inter interest towards anthropology. So when I returned to school, um, I noticed that she actually was still teaching, which was amazing. So that um, with that being the case, I enrolled in her class and took several um, of her other anthropology classes. So yeah, a really amazing professor. She's a PhD holder of anthropology. So we'll, we'll I'll let you or I'll let Dr. Melissa King introduce herself. Hi, thank you so much, Monrel, for um, inviting me to be on your on your show. Um, it's really humbling to hear how you talk about me, and I'm so honored to have a connection with you that has continued to today, and to be able to like participate in your projects. It's really awesome. Absolutely, the the pleasure is all mine. The honor is all mine. Thank you so much. Okay, so um, now uh, now that you're here, you know. Uh, you know, what do you do um, as far as, you know, what, what are your titles? Is it, you know, start by introducing your name, um, your title, and anything that's relevant for today's topic. Sure. I'm Dr. Melissa King. I'm the faculty chair and associate professor of anthropology at San Bernardino Valley College in San Bernardino, California. And I've been teaching for about eight years. Prior to that, I was working on my PhD at UC Riverside. Um, and then there's a longer story, like before an educator for about 20 years, um, I've been working in anthropology loosely, um, you know, since the days of undergrad, when I decided to major in anthropology, um, one of the best decisions that I ever made. Um, although at the time my mom was like, you know, well, what are you going to do with that? What is anthropology? Um, I think it's a super important discipline and I hope we can talk about why today. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you, you touched briefly on, you know, your mom being involved with uh, your anthropology uh, you know, early career. So um, now that we, 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 we see that your mom played a part, can we touch a little bit deeper on uh, why you decided to become an anthropologist? And uh, you did mention UC Riverside, so feel free to talk about your uh, educational background as well. And how was that like? Yeah, um, so I grew up um, in a family where no one else had gone to college, so you can consider me a first-generation college student. Um, we had our struggles, you know, living with a single mom, and I think the idea was that when you go to college, you're going to major in something that will lead you to a lucrative career, right? Because, like, it's, you know, you got to survive. you got to make money somehow, and so I was that pre-med track student, but um, Cal 2 was not, like, super fun or anything, and I took an anthropology class and it really strongly resonated with me. Um, the issues that came up in that class had to do with what it means to be human, cultural differences, issues of nationality, um, ethnocentrism and violence, conflict and peace, um, questions about the impact of religion on people's worldviews. And um, this really just resonated with me um, for a couple different reasons. I grew up in a home um, that had parents of two different religions, two different cultural backgrounds. I found myself being a cultural broker between them. So a lot of questions of identity, 
um, were already kind of familiar to me personally. And I saw those play out in my anthropology class. And I thought, wow, this really speaks to me. This is something that I can study more than I have to do that. Questions of justice, questions of um, equality and equity, questions about gender, questions about uh, making the world a better place, however trite that might sound, really appealed to me um, for a lot of personal reasons. Absolutely. This is amazing. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Uh, so it seems like you have a really deep, uh, I, you know, I, I would originally say emotional connection, but can we say that you're connecting more on the sense of empathy and just being a humanitarian, just being a good person. And overall, this is just who you are. You know, would you say that? I mean, that sounds great. Sure, I'd love to say that, but I'm not sure it's true. I mean, I think that people in a lot of different areas um, can be empathetic. And I think there's a lot of different ways to be empathetic. Um, you know, I think one of the reasons that I was interested in studying medicine and becoming a doctor was to heal people, right? And that's super empathetic. I think if you ask a lot of students in medical school, what made you want to be a doctor? You're going to get answers along those lines. Um, I know there's designers at Apple or um, people that work at Facebook that are really into empathy, right? They're studying um, how people respond to different um, software and um, different design. And they want to make sure that they're empathetically reaching people's needs. So I think empathy does show up in different ways. But um, just for me, anthropology did resonate emotionally, yeah, and personally. Um, the track I ended up taking at UC Riverside was uh, a cultural-focused track. And um, I don't know if the question for me was empathy, but I, my studies were focused on violence and how people live with the legacy of that. So um, maybe I do study a little bit more in the emotional realm of things or the psychological realm of things than other anthropologists that might be doing something more scientific or anatomical in a laboratory. Um, but I think we can all be empathetic in different ways. Absolutely. Wow. Okay. Great information. Now, with all of that, what you said, it, it, you know, can we take it a little bit further? So here you are, professor of anthropology. You know, you have some research under your belt. You have know some achievements and successes so you know if you can touch briefly on what anthropology is you know let's connect that to you know really present like what has anthropology done so far where can we see it how is you know anthropology visible that's a really difficult question Monroe, and um <laughs> i think you know that but maybe that's why you asked me um Anthropology is such a broad discipline, right? I mean, we can define it as the textbooks do, um, the study of what it means to be human. Um, but what it means to be human is something that people look at from a lot of different areas, a lot of different backgrounds. I mean, biologists have perhaps a very biological or genetic or neuroscientific definition of the human. Um, but ask an artist, right, or a philosopher what it means to be human. I mean, these are questions that many people grapple with. Um, can you be a human but have lost your humanity? Can you be a chimpanzee but have some kind of humanity? Um, or be, be a person? I think that was actually a case argued um, in front of the Supreme Court of the United States. Can a chimp be considered a person in the sense of having humanity and a sense of self? Um, so, yeah, the, there are broader questions, but these are all kind of like encompassed within anthropology. Uh, as you know, there are you know different branches of anthropology from archaeology to biological, linguistic, and cultural. Um, and I think today what makes anthropology interesting and relevant 
is what some people are calling a fifth branch or a fifth subfield um, of applied anthropology. And these are people that, um, the applied anthropologists, that are not working in like your traditional academic spaces of anthropology, doing research and teaching, but they're working for Google or insurance companies or the National Park Service. And they're actually making applicable, right, to solving and addressing real world issues related to questions of humanity, human life, um, in a literal sense, in a more moral sense or a metaphorical sense, um, how, how we can survive, how we can improve, how we can address the issues that exist. Perfect. Perfect. So even from that, you know, for the listeners, if you're listening, she talked about five groups of anthropology, the fifth one being applied. But before that, you know, we have our cultural, linguistic, biological, all of these you know, forms of anthropology, you know, so it's, it's much more than just the word anthropology. And, uh, you know, if, you know, just to kind of tag along, we know we can see linguistic anthropology uh, in the sense of just linguistics, right? And what is linguistics is dealing with uh, the origin of language, or the study of language and anthropology kind of helps us determine where that language comes from. So now let's get into the next topic, whereas anthropology in the future. You know, we know where it is now to some extent, and we can find out where it is now. But how does anthropology to you, Dr. Melissa King, fit into, you know, advancements, say, technology as well as artificial intelligence? Right. So that's a great question. Um, I do think it's super important for both anthropologists and um, a lot of people out there working in the fields of technology, health, um, a lot of different things. Uh, anthropology has always been interdisciplinary, right? I mean, as was just mentioned a minute ago, you know, to study what it means to be human and to study the resolution of human issues, it means, you know, working in teams, right, or figuring out how to apply your knowledge across different domains um, as an anthropologist. Uh, there's a quote by Carol Delaney, an anthropologist that I really like. Um, she said, it's not really about what you study in anthropology. It's about um, how you study that topic. So anthropology offers a certain perspective. And I think um, where anthropology is most useful today is when anthropological perspectives, uh, theoretical stances, the way we look at things is used in teams, design teams, problem resolution teams, um, peace building missions, to offer our, our particular view, um, be it about culture, be it about history, be it about you know particular theories, in, in coordination and dialogue with folks from other areas who've studied problems and humans from other perspectives. Um, so I think we're seeing um, a lot more um, applications being put in at Apple, for example, by anthropologists who want to um, push forward conversations about empathy and how to design for consumers in, in an ethical way, a way that works for people, um, a way that addresses issues of sustainable you know, environments and all kinds of other things. But it's not that those topics, right, are necessarily anthropological. It's, it's the perspective that we bring that has to do with things like relativism, um, justice, culture, evolution, and so on. Absolutely. Okay, so that's amazing how we are able to connect in a way, you know, to what your information about anthropology and see it in such a uh, well-rounded approach to that of technology, you know, from anthropologists 
uh, seeking to join teams such as Apple so that they can work on studies dealing with empathy. But if you don't mind, I, you know, I would like to step backwards in time and talk about, you know, my, my attempted research project. And the reason why, because I'm sure you remember to some extent, I hope you do, uh, but I, I, I attempted to do, you know, an abstract on linguistics and, you know, a theory of how, you know, linguistics may fit into uh, artificial intelligence. Now that some time has yeah. passed, I'm able to kind of look at how flawed that abstract was and how, you know, immature my writing was and how, you know, no vice my knowledge was. And so now I kind of want to step back into that and see if you feel like, you know, if can there be any line drawn to artificial intelligence? Because in, in my respect, my, my, that research or that, that research attempt came from my studies or it, it was inspired by my studies and linguistic anthropology, which I took in your, which, which I was in your class. I really appreciate that. You know, you can look back and say that you were, um, you know, immature or lacked knowledge at that point. I mean, for you to be able to say that shows that you've grown, right? So kudos to you. I really love that. Um, and you can see an evolution of, of, of your thoughts. Um, thank you for sharing that so humbly. Um, I do think that there is room to talk about a linguistic basis for artificial intelligence. And that is because a lot of artificial intelligence works through um, forgive my language because I'm, this is not my area of specialty, but it works on computers. <laughs> it works in a digital realm of some sort or an automated electrical domain of some sort. And um, we can talk about computer code and programming as a language. So uh, algorithms are, are languages. Um, you know, math is a language. So um, I, I do think there's tons of room to talk about that. My interest is stepping even further back one one more pace from that, which is to examine the way that culture is embodied in these languages and thereby shows up in the kinds of machine learning or programming or engineering, right, that takes place. Um, we can't have artificial intelligence that learns how to be anything but an extension of humanity. So it's always going to involve human languages, human engineering, and human culture. Wow. Absolutely. And, you know, that was, it was seamlessly connected from linguistics and went directly into, you know, an approach of culture, but without actually sacrificing the identity of the two. So now that we can kind of see the part that cultural anthropology plays or might play or can be played in artificial intelligence and how that connects to linguistic anthropology, how about uh, biological anthropology? The reason why I ask that is because another thing that kind of inspired my lean towards artificial intelligence was uh, I think we did a project where we had to identify bones, you know, that you gave us. And it was such a really cool experience to have these, you know, skeletons in my head. And then I just started thinking, can we replicate this somehow? Can we tie this into innovation? What do you think? Yeah, I think there's a there's definitely ties and links. Um, so I don't know that, you know, I can't say like there's a basis from the world of biological anthropology, but certainly I think there's a lot of conversations. And again, this is not my area of expertise, but conversations about um, replicating 
right? Um, neurobiological processes or anatomical processes in robots or in um, machine learning, machine practices. Um, you know, I think that's possible. It's just not something that I know a lot about. That's, which is totally fine because, you know, the, the, main, the, the main objective today is to supply your knowledge and your expertise and other areas where people may not find the connection or may not initially see the connection. So already with what you provided, regardless of how far we can actually move, is already substantial. You know, it's already noteworthy. And I believe we have two more that I, you know, uh, I kind of want to touch on, but we've already touched on applied, so we don't really have to fall into that one. But one more, archaeology. And uh, I, I will be completely honest, I do not remember taking archaeology um, or remember my studies in archaeology. So forgive me. Uh, now, the main question is, how does archaeology play into artificial intelligence? I was just reading this article. Um, I can forward it to you. Forgive me for not remembering right now where it came from. Um, but, but I believe that um, this is one of the areas that um, artificial intelligence is enhancing the practice of anthropology rather than the reverse. Um, I think that satellite images are being studied by, by machine learning processes um, to identify archaeological sites or potential archaeological sites. So think about, you know, um, the overgrown jungle at many ruins of Mayan cities. And think about how difficult it would be, you know, if you're just a human with your human eyes and the equipment that we have, GIS and so on, trying to figure out where, where to dig, yes. right? Um, wh where was a building? And I guess what, um, what's happening is that archaeologists are using satellite technology and plugging in certain algorithms, right? So again, these are human engineered and human culture is a part of that. Um, but there, there's an eye that we don't have, right? When we start using that kind of technology, it's an extension of our perception. Um, and they're identifying sites. And so it's going to make um, perhaps the finds more available and more accessible to us, archaeologically speaking. Um, that's just one example, but I, but I think that moving forward, we're going to see a lot more um, technology that uses machine learning or um, satellite imaging uh, algorithms that interpret that to, to study archaeology. Amazing. Now, I did mention that I, you, we, didn't, we wouldn't have to touch on applied anthropology, but I have a feeling that this fifth area of, you know, anthropology actually rounds all four of the others um, out in a way, um, puts them all together. And, uh, you know, me being uh, with or studying applied linguistics at UCLA, I had, you know, it, it was more applicative and more applied linguists went into teaching. So now let's see how, you know, or what can you tell us about how applied actually serves to, you know, conclude or reiterate everything? So I'm not sure if this, you know, fits into applied, but well, I mean, I guess maybe it could. It depends on how we define that. But um, a lot of cultural anthropologists, uh, some of whom are applying their their work into the real world, if you want to call it that, um, are calling themselves cyber anthropologists. Um, and I think a lot of these folks or or um, post-human academics, academics that study post-humanity, um, are interested in artificial intelligence, as I mentioned, an extension of our human bodies and human perception and human cognition. Um, so taking that ability to extend 
human capacity into different realms of business or government. I think that is going to be something that we see happening a lot more. The anthropologists that work at Facebook, Airbnb, um, the National Park Service, you know, these are the anthropologists that, that are doing that. You can do a Google search for design anthropologists, and you're going to see anthropologists' web pages popping up that explain how they are designers designing and engineering technology with empathy for consumers or to solve problems or to build momentum around a human issue. And they're drawing on their cultural anthropological knowledge about what a machine is, about the interactions between humans and objects about what human perception is. Um, so again, it's that perspective that we have as anthropologists that can be applied with the understanding of how we relate to machines, right? That would be applicable in like a design team, for example. Absolutely, absolutely, amazing. So now we, we've kind of uh, traveled through time. We talked about you know your early history on what brought you into anthropology. We talked about you know, your studies and what you do at the moment. And now we've kind of, we've gotten a look at you know, how you can see anthropology applied to the future and how you know, future dealing with artificial intelligence. Now I have another question. It's a little bit, you know, fic I, I guess, I, I don't know, is this a fic fictional? What can we, we, is it just a stretch to ask this question? You know, um, in your class, we discussed the homogeneous during uh, biological mm -hmm. anthropology. Um, from your understanding of Homo Neanderthalis to uh, Homo sapiens, uh, forgive me, listeners, forgive me, Dr. King, for such a crazy. <laughs> of course. Would it be ridiculous to assume the homogeneous is up for yet another evolution? Why or why not? That is absolutely not ridiculous, and I'm glad you asked the question, and it shows that you have held on to that knowledge in some form, so kudos to you once again. Um, evolution never stops, right? Evolution is a constant, ongoing process. We are living organisms, um, generation by generation, that are subject to forces of evolution, including natural selection, and as our environment changes, that includes the cultural, social environment that we're brought up in, the technological environment that we're born into and raised in, um, that influences the evolution of our biology at a neurological level, at a genetic level. So yeah, we're gonna keep evolving. Absolutely, we never stopped. Amazing, I, you know, I'm, I'm glad that was the answer that, uh, so I, I was worried. I was worried that I might uh, be overstepping, but thank you so much providing, for providing that, uh, that, that approach. Now, given that information or given your response, how does this evolution or this, uh, you know, the fact that we as humans are always evolving, how does that play into, you know, evolution dealing with artificial intelligence? And just to kind of give a little bit more background on that question to see where I'm going with this, is that uh, I'll just take this for example. In one conversation that I had with someone, it was believed that, oh, artificial intelligence would destroy the world or take over the world. But We've just been spent some time discussing how, you know, anthropology benefits the world and it provides, you know, a, an approach to, you know, different perspectives dealing with culture and backgrounds, you know. And so I think it is very possible that artificial intelligence can be nowhere near this evil that people proclaim. 
But there are also movies out there that indicate that there can be, you know, uh, maybe a disagreement between robots and humans or even a conjoining of humans and robotics, you know, and we see that in Alita. I'm not sure if you've had a chance to see that movie, but Alita, it, it dealt with a lot of androids, you know what I mean? And, you know, is android a part of evolution? Could that be possible given, you know, the anatomy of humans versus the proposed anatomy of artificial intelligence? Great questions. I haven't seen that movie, but now I'll watch it. Um, I think the first thing that I'm thinking of is the way that humans um, tend to project a lot of our fears and uncertainties onto, um, you know, like these manifestations from flying saucers to Bigfoot to QAnon, we tend to, forgive me for getting political for a second, but we tend to, um, in moments of uncertainty, project our vulnerabilities and our fears outside of ourselves onto other things. So, um, you know, there's there's many different ways that, that this happens. Uh, I was listening to a gentleman speak on, on a TED Talk this morning. He talked about how many people after World War II in Europe started seeing flying saucers and how he explained that as um, simply a manifestation of the kind of collective readjustment to moving from wartime to peacetime and the uncertainty and the flux and everything being in a moment of we don't know where things are going, what are, what's going to be happening people just took their attention to the skies and they became fearful of something else. The reality is they were fearful of things in their own lives and uncertain about things in their own lives. But, but, you know, what rather would talk about flying saucers because it was easier to be scared of those things. I think that's sometimes what happens in the conversation with artificial intelligence or computers or robots. Um, we don't know enough about it. And so it becomes a symbol um, of our of our own insecurities. There's so many books written on this topic. There's books about zombies. There's books about Bigfoot. There's books about cryptids in general. There's books about big government. And you know, look into science fiction, right? Or Halloween movies. You're going to see this massive collective representation of the things that scare us. We are scared of being taken over, right? Whether it's by computers or aliens, some other removing our humanity from us. And so there's already questions right there about, well, why is it that we're fearful of losing our humanity? Is it threatened? Actually, what's it being threatened by? Maybe we should look a little bit more reflexively at that. The second thing that I think you're bringing up um, has to do with the notion of artificial intelligence as something new. And I'm not sure that it really is. In some ways it's new and that can be scary for people. Um, but in another way, artificial intelligence is an extension of the technology that our homogeneous members have been making for over a million years, right? The technological innovation that Homo habilis created uh, when, when they made the first stone tools, right? And we've seen this technological evolution continuing until today. I think there's a lot of different ways to talk about different kinds of technology that exist. One of the things that I've been interested in is a prosthesis. Um, a prosthesis can be defined as an object or item external to the self that is used to extend the self's abilities to perceive, to do whatever, or also to prop up something that might be considered lacking in the self. If I don't have the ability to hear, I can get a hearing aid. That would be a prosthesis that would allow me to substitute for an ability perceived as a lack. And so rather than humans focusing on what do we lack and what can we not do, 
um, we take our attention to those things that are the prosthetics and maybe become a little wary of what they will be able to do one day. But really, they're tools that allow us to do more if we think about it that way. I, I think that, you know, this is one of those cases where knowledge about the topic makes a huge difference. And then also the perspective we bring makes a big difference. Absolutely phenomenal. And I'm really glad that you touched on prosthetics because you know, one of the areas that I, I've been really excited about is, you know, advanced prosthetics and how they can make prosthetics that move with your uh, thinking ability. And that touches on, you know, we are allowed to do more with artificial intelligence. So I guess being uh, an android is not the worst thing, huh? I mean, I guess not exactly an android, but you know, somehow meshing yourself with that of technology, yeah, your physical self with that of technology. Yeah, I think we've been meshing ourselves with technology for over a million years. Um, it's just, it's taking a new form, right? We're, we're in a digital age and we have the ability to do more with our technology today. You know, looking back, you know, have, have there been technologies that people were scared of that we now laugh at? Absolutely. Think about how people reacted to the first moving pictures, you know? They see a train moving across the screen. There's stories of this, right? And they thought the train was coming at them and they ran screaming out of the movie theater. I mean, there's kind of a fear of things unknown, right? And how, how can that be? And so part of that is, again, I think a lack of understanding. Um, there is a gap between the creators, the engineers, the designers of, of a lot of artificial intelligence technologies today and you know um and like regular folks that might be one one issue just resolving that gap um but maybe we also need more examples right across that gap of um the positive benefits of these technologies absolutely wow um so you know dr melissa king that is all the questions that i have for you today but you've done you, you've done more than i could hope for You've done way more than I could hope for. You provided the listeners with so much origin, so much, uh, you know, examples of current time and how it can be seen, and also a very, you know, conceptual approach to that of artificial intelligence in a way that, you know, people can start thinking a little deeper about, you know, topics that they wouldn't have considered before, uh, you know, and also connections that they may have not seen. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. King. And, you know, it's been a pleasure. It's an honor. And I'm very thankful that you're not put off by the fact that I was such a terrible student. So, uh, Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for having me, Monrell. I'm so honored to be part of your project. I'm so glad that we stayed in touch. I'm so proud of you. And uh, keep up the good work. This was Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you so much. You take care. Bye. Don't hang up. Um, okay. So there you have it, folks. You know, hopefully at the end of this podcast, we can look a little bit more deeper into, uh, you know, research. Research as it applies to, you know, what it means to be a human. Research dealing with what does it mean to look towards the future and anticipate and research into drawing a connection between ideas such as those two. 
I can't really speak much more on this topic because Dr. Melissa King has already provided us with so much information that is valuable, substantial, and can be useful to that uh, you know, advancement, innovation, ingenuity, and just thinking. So goodbye to all and may all be well.